0: Hello and welcome to another episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me this week are Sharon Kamathi, my Editor at Fintech Futures, Hey. and Sophie Gibault, Chief Growth Officer at OpenPaid. Hello both. Hello. Uh, We are well into June, but still recording separately from our own locations. As usual, one day we'll get back to our lovely podcast recording studio, but it is not this day. So the topic this week and what we'll be talking to Sophie a little bit about later on is payments and how the industry has reacted to the coronavirus pandemic. But first thing first, we've actually come uh, to the pod today with some news from the past week for our segment about news in numbers. We've all come along with some number-led stories to talk about. Uh, Sophie, you're our guest. So uh, why don't you do us the honors and tell us what news story with a with a big number and it has caught your eye this week?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, with pleasure. So, so my big number is uh, $66 million, and um, it's to talk about uh, the Indian's Central Bank Initiative, which created a $66 million uh, digital payments infrastructure funds to support um, digital payment ecosystem rollout into India's rural and northeast districts. Um, and I thought it was a very interesting news because, first of all, it's a quite significant uh fund um and it shows um like a government uh real interest in uh basically financial inclusion and pushing um uh digital payments in uh in more rural areas. And uh, what I thought was particularly interesting is that it's, it, this fund is uh, to cover operational expenses of setup, but also yearly shortfalls, if necessary, of uh, banks and companies that would roll out those different services in those rural, rural areas. So I think it's a real uh, significant uh, effort, essentially.
2: Yeah, I think it was quite interesting as well. Um It was one of my editor's picks for this month, actually, in the magazine. I think the coronavirus crisis revealed that the hygienic and practical limitations of paper currency are there, so many countries are accelerating their proposals for digital currencies. In fact, new research into the changing habits of about 2,000 UK consumers from NTT data revealed that almost half of UK consumers will not use cash post-lockdown. This is a rise of 46% compared to the pre-COVID-19 world. And also in the digital currency space, aside from India, we've also seen how China has forged ahead in progressing with a new digital yen with 19 local businesses, um, including the U.S. chains like Starbucks, Subway, McDonald's, and they want to do this all by the end of the year. Um, There's also Bank de France. Um, So they also published a request for proposals for a central bank digital currency um, and there's also Australia's central bank, the Reserve Bank of Australia, which has been working on its own digital currency since January. So we may actually see the successes or failures of these projects by the end of next year, I guess. Um, how about you, Alex? What do you think about it?
0: Sure. I think that India is is uh is a fantastic case study in sort of the growth of innovation. The country's um one of those where it it's advancing so rapidly. That um, it has to do initiatives like this to really reach the the more rural areas of the country. I mean, Modi's done his uh, connecting everywhere in the country to electricity, and, and now they're going to connect everywhere in the country to the internet as well. But India's, I think, is uh, a land of uh, contrast because it also has the fastest growth of ATM deployments in the in the world since two thousand sixteen. Um, with 7,000 machines going up all across the country and, um, the country's own independent ATM deployers have installed three times the numbers of ATMs compared to banks. So it's a country where, although there is a, a big need for, for digitization and, and moving things out in that way, it's also one where cash, uh, does very much still remain king. But, um, I think with that, we'll move on to, to my number for the week. Um, which is I'm trying to keep this. This trend of getting big numbers in because I I I came with seven percent not too long ago and it still haunts me. Uh, so my number this week is going to be twenty one billion pounds, which is the amount which Goldman Sachs claims to have received in deposits into its Marcus D- digital banking arm in the UK since its two thousand eighteen launch. Uh, now, as a result of that figure, the bank has had to close uh, new new customers to its UK wing as it gets perilously close to that £25 billion limit for deposits. That's before a bank needs to start ring-fencing its assets away from the main bank. Uh, And I think in what is one of those fabulously understated press statements you get from the heads of banks, uh, Marcus UK head Des McKay told Reuters that separating Marcus financially and operationally from Goldman Sachs would be a significant change to our low-cost business model now uh since January Marcus has been pretty successful by all by all numbers it 's seen more than eight billion dollars eight billion pounds sorry inflow from about one hundred thousand new users um, four billion four billion of that was deposited during the lockdown so um, it's in fact it slashed its its saver rate twice from one point three percent to one point two percent and then down to one point zero five percent but has kept seeing new customers arrive and for me, it reminds me of that um That DJ Khaled album where he's covered in gold necklaces and jewelry, but he's got his head in his hands and the the title is, uh, you know, suffering from success. Um, and I think, I think the people at Marcus and Goldman are very happy with the numbers they've managed to accrue. But I think for me, it sort of highlights an interesting dichotomy between the goals that Marcus has versus the goals that another, uh, Greenfield bank might have because, because it's owned by a major bank, the growth aspect sort of only goes so far. I think any, uh, fresh face challenger bank that started with nothing would be throwing pizza parties every day if they had these kinds of numbers behind mm-hmm. them but um Sharon what do you think
2: honestly that is so funny that you managed to get a pop culture reference in with DJ Khaled as well that is awesome I don't think I can top yeah, that, I'm very exactly. happy about that. <laughs> I can't top that this week so I'll, I'll let you have it um so for me I was mainly going to focus on the interest rate um segment of it because it's so weird how That's the most attractive interest rate you can get nowadays for an easy access or instant savings account in the UK, just a measly 1.16% variable interest rate um, from the National Savings and Investments, according to WHICH money supermarket and money facts. I I did quite a a bit of Googling to try and see the best one, but yeah, it's just 1.16%. And we recently actually had Victor Tracudas, which was, he was the CEO of Savings App Plum. um, And he said that there's been a steady rate of savings amid the coronavirus pandemic, but it's such a shame that this is the best that people can get in the UK. Um, Although inflation has fallen to a four-year low of 0.5% during May, Savers still have to struggle to find some good deals. I mean, aside from Marcus's RCI Bank, which is the banking arm of the car firm Renault, which slashed its rate from 1.2% to 1.05% on the 15th of May. And Paragon Bank as well cut its easy access rate in half to 0.5% on the 14th of May. Then we had AA uh, pull its 1% easy saver from its sale, to 0.25%. So it's just quite tragic, to be honest, um, with all the really low interest rates. And it's not just in the UK, it's across the board as well. What do you think, Sophie?
1: Yeah, so actually, uh, yeah, I, I think the interest uh, rate uh, angle is definitely a shame for, for customers, uh, obviously, but I think it's quite still amazing that they have kept on offering such a high rate, knowing that uh, the Bank of England cut its base rate to 0.1%. So essentially, like the, the, the policy at the moment is to make people consume rather than than save, and Goldman Sachs could get essentially um, uh, money at a much lower rates than the ones they are it's offering essentially to to its customers right so um so i think we are entering in a world where like governments will push us to actually spend more to actually uh support um the uh, the economy and as a result it means that um uh, saving solutions are becoming uh, or will be in the coming more uh, months uh Scar- scarcer and scarcer eventually. Um, the second part that I thought was, uh, interesting in this story stories to see that essentially people being at home has resulted in them, um, focusing on investing their, their money, um, in, uh, and like trying to think in the best way they, they could do that. And, uh, Goldman Sachs seems to be definitely one of the, the great way to, to do so in, uh, in, uh, more secure ways than it could be with other organizations at the moment. So so I think this investment opportunity was still a great one because it was one of the highest um, interest rates uh, existing um, at the moment. And I'm not surprised that uh, essentially there has been so much demand for it.
0: Fantastic. Well, uh, we have uh, the third story of the week, last but by no means least. Um, Sharon, you've got one about a piece of technology innovation, which seems to have fallen by the wayside recently, but uh, it's made a resurgence. So why don't you tell us what your, your story is this week?
2: Yes, indeed. So my number is sort of in the middling area. It's 100 as Keisha Bank starts rolling out 100 facial recognition ATMs. Um, so it's done so throughout Spain with an aim to install its machines to over 30 of the bank's branches. The nationwide rollout will allow customers to withdraw money with an image captured by the terminal of their face rather than using chip and pin authentication. Uh, Some machines are already operational in the bank's flagship branches across Barcelona, Valencia, with full implementation of all 100 machines, quotes, forecasted for mid-July 2020. Um, I guess my issue here is that whilst the Spanish Bank is making these gains in the facial recognition tech race, some big tech companies have actually been moving away from the software in the wake of the Black Lives Matters protests. Uh, so they've highlighted how the technology's um, tendencies have actually sort of increased discrimination as well, because they're not so accurate. So there have been quite a few studies which show that it's not accurate for both um, people of colour And also women. So if you are a black woman like myself, then it's going to be quite difficult for it to actually capture it accurately. Um, But not only that, it's also because facial recognition has been controversial as it essentially puts people on a watch list, especially when it comes down to police um, and also law enforcement. So it can capture you from just being in the street to protests or a football match or a music festival. Um, And this disproportionate surveillance is most keenly felt by people of colour. So the Metropolitan Police in London used their facial recognition at the Notting Hill Carnival for two years in a row. And also they did so in the London Borough of Newham, which is one of UK's most ethnically diverse areas. So there's been some sort of protest and pushback to stop doing so, especially when you're targeting people of colour. So this is not only happening in law enforcement, now a lot of private companies have actually started saying, you know what, we're not going to be using these products. So on the 8th of June, IBM said it would stop selling facial recognition products. Google also advocated for a temporary ban. And then Amazon on the 10th of June said that it was putting a one-year pause on letting the police use its facial recognition tool. Um, Over in America, the American Civil Liberties Union said that that was good to finally recognize the dangers faced by people who are black and and brown as well, um, and trying to advocate for civil rights more broadly. But it did say that the company should extend the moratorium on law enforcement use until Congress has actually passed a law regulating the technology. And also in the UK, there has been a committee that was set up recently in order to try and identify, you know, the bias that comes from facial recognition software but also in AI. So I know it's quite a lot to unpack there. So what do you think about this, Alex?
0: Yeah, there's a lot in, the, in that story to unpack, like you said, and I think there's there's a lot in there. And for me, I think it's this, there's always been this question when banks and financial institutions have been looking at biometric technology and facial recognition um, of at what point do people push back? Um, you have things like... Um, I I got an account with the challenger bank about a year ago and part of the verification process was to record myself saying a phrase um, with a video and I remember thinking, okay, that's a bit odd. I don't really like that very much. Um, And I think it's we've we've sort of hit that break wave where I think people find it a bit uncanny valley now to be um, having their facial data stored somewhere. Um and I think as well, it's a technology that I think is is prone to error. That there's all sorts of um, like you said, identification issues with it. There's all sorts of problems around where the data's stored. Um it reminds me of back when he used to report on video games when when Microsoft uh debuted its um facial recognition tech for one of its um platforms of software. Um, that was supposed to be a gaming platform. I remember it had issues then. It couldn't recognise uh, black or ethnic people um, who would disappear into the background. If you had um, polka dots on your wallpaper, it wouldn't recognise who you were. If you wore a skirt, it thought you had eight or nine legs. It was—it's just technology that really throws up a lot of questions. And I think it's a good, good thing that it's being rolled back a little bit now to uh, for people to have a, a better look at you know where this tech is, what it's for, and what it's really being used for
1: so i think um what the another angle to 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 look at it is maybe to uh, to see that kaisha bank is trying to uh, to introduce um, i mean new ways of uh, identification so facial recognition is and might not be the best one, but it's also about how they bring it to the customers. Meaning that um, if they offer actually different ways to do it, then maybe it becomes more inclusive, right? Like yes, I can choose to use facial recognition because I like this experience, but maybe I can keep on doing uh, cheap uh, and pin, or maybe I maybe I don't know with the prints, things like that. So. It depends on the, the the approach they 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 are taking and how it, inclusive it remains. I would say.
0: Now we enter part two of the podcast, where we open the discussion up to a specific industry topic. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we're talking about the payments industry and its reaction to the stresses and strains of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, But first things first, I want to give Sophie a chance to introduce her company OpenPaid, what her role there, what the firm does and what its goals are for this year. So Sophie, if you just want to give everyone listening an introduction, that'd be fantastic.
1: Sure, Alex. Um, so my name is Sophie Guibault. I'm Chief Growth Officer of OpenPaid. Um, OpenPaid is a fintech uh, based in London that was created back in 2017. Um, we provide banking and payments to corporates, uh, including multi-currency accounts, FX, card processing, uh, through a single access point, uh, and we provide our clients with a network of licenses that uh, enables them to offer banking services to, to their end customers. So we essentially have licenses in the UK, in Europe, in Turkey, um, in the US as well. And it really allows us to help our customers uh, provide payments and banking to, to their own clients. Um, uh, So the company was created in 2017, as I have mentioned. uh, uh, As part of our recent developments, um, we have uh, just appointed Ruth Evans, which is quite well known in the payment industry uh, as a board advisor. Um, And we have done the same for uh, Matthias Kruner, which is the um, ex-CEO of Fidor, uh, which is my, uh, my previous company. So we believe that both can really support Uh, in terms of uh, corporate governments, payment infrastructure, as well as um, basically um, uh, for Matthias, his world experience of the fintech industry and launching new propositions across uh, different um, uh, geographies. Uh, and uh, another of our recent news is that we have uh, gotten a license in Turkey, which allows us to address this uh, very uh, big market uh, from now on. So it's quite exciting. Um, as part of our yearly goal, uh, we uh, essentially wants to uh, integrate more uh, ecosystem partners to, to our offering, to uh, offer more and more services and choice to our um, corporate customers, and um, to launch new propositions for specific target segments. So specifically, at the moment, we are looking into FX brokers, uh, digital asset companies, uh, marketplace Um, And and we will be rolling out to to more segments.
2: That's really interesting. And I was just wondering if there have been any changes to the payment system and payment preferences, um, both in the UK and also in Europe since the coronavirus outbreak.
1: Yeah, so I think we have been uh, seeing quite a lot of changes on the end cost, customer uh, perspective. So basically, like people uh, have turned more and more to uh, to internet banking versus uh, uh, branches. Uh, before, uh, people prefer uh, now prefer mobile uh, banking um, than uh, than before. Yes, um, people are not using cash. So I think there is an average of 44 days without using cash for British people, which is quite huge. If you think about it, have you ever not (laughs) or spent that much time without using cash? I, I don't, I think not so many people have. So um so it certainly has impacted the, the way we uh we uh we, we, we pay for things and we um we actually spend. And on the other side, payment companies have have been seeing their uh, revenue mix change. So for the ones that were very much uh, on the offline industry and travel industry, um, well, payments have been decreasing, but uh, for others that are very strong in the e-commerce industry or uh, marketplaces, or even uh, industries that are um, against current, such as digital assets or gaming, for example, they have seen their um, their volumes uh, increase.
2: Yeah, that's interesting to note about the whole gaming aspect As there are more people who are staying at home um, and also the digital stuff. The more people are staying at home, which means, you know, these industries do really well alongside, you know, like your e-commerce, et cetera. But, On the flip side, travel, retail, not so great. Um, But yeah, I was wondering if there were any other countries you think have been handling this shift quite well or ones that you think can improve. um, And if they do need to improve, what can they work on to make their payment systems better?
1: yeah so um i think it has been a global move towards improving contactless limits and that uh, is a is a big change or a big acceleration right <laughs> because contactless limits were uh, were quite uh, reduced and i think it has been helping a lot co- customers as well as uh, merchants and it has been a global move in the uk and uh and in europe for all countries um so the higher the contactless limits the, the, the better the experience uh, uh, really on the other side of course uh, some people have concerns around uh, around security so it's really about balancing and each countries have made their own decision regarding that um I think also like quite a lot of countries have very much focused on financial inclusion because um cash um usage has decreased but um it's still a concern for people that actually don't have much access to to bank accounts uh, or digital banking so there has been a lot of um uh, focus on uh, essentially in- Increasing like uh acceptance of cash and making sure that banknotes were sterilized and quarantined and all that kind of thing, so I think countries have been very mindful of that of more vulnerable people and how they can actually pay uh, for things. I think in the future it's also about making sure that everybody can access somehow digital banking and even traditional players give. Access to 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 search uh, services um, in branches, etc. Essentially, um, another thing that I've found interesting is essentially the um, the reaction of governments to support the travel industry, so airlines as well as hotel, etc. With uh, massive Voucher schemes on top of um, governmental support to uh, to enable those uh, those business to to keep on working.
2: Excellent point about the financial inclusivity um, for people without bank accounts, because at the moment, um, figures show that about 1.7 billion adults worldwide still don't have access to a bank account, according to some World Bank data in 2018. Not sure how much that's changed since that point and now. But yeah, it seems like it is a great point about just ensuring people have bank accounts. In fact, it was featured in one of the episodes of Queer Eye, Um, where Bobby had a a guy who didn't have a bank account and was trying to set it up digitally. So that's a a great point. And now that some countries are easing their lockdown, what do you think the main priorities for businesses should be, especially for their payment systems? Is it their portfolios, um, adapting to different operating models, or is it reviewing the industry's structure as a whole?
1: Well, I think it's a bit of everything, right? Um, and I also depends uh, things that the measures depend on on the type of business. But so overall, the first step should be definitely about supporting customers, I think. So we have seen uh, that uh, in the industry, quite a lot of companies have taken steps to actually offer free resource to their customers. Uh, I'm talking about here in particular B2B customers, but so free resource, wave fees where there there is uh, no real costs behind. Um, if for example, there is the startup Conto in France. Uh, it's a SME, uh, neo bank that have done that. Um, have, there has been also quite a lot of companies supporting the distribution of government relief schemes. We have seen that, for example, with uh, with Starling Bank. Um, or, for example, not charging specific charities. So a lot of initiatives have been around supporting customers, and I think it should keep on being that way because a lot of B2B customers have definitely been impacted a lot about uh, with the crisis. So everything we can do to support our customers, we should do. Then looking about uh, specifically banks and companies that are more Offline, I think their point of focus should be about ensuring digital excellence. For their customers, so because a lot of them have had to do it quite fast, uh, essentially to to keep on serving their customers or um, or even doing business. So you can think of the companies that have um, that have opened e-commerce shop very uh, fast. Um, you can think of banks that have set up remote working and still serving customers through Zoom, that kind of thing. But in the future, that kind of situation might happen again and we actually have seen quite the benefits of digital excellence. So investment should be done um, in that way. Now there is also business that have like no business models or, or very limited uh, revenues. I think then this crisis highlight the fact that it's high time to not only rely on acquiring customers, but it's also about monetizing them to actually have a business model and be able to support your employees, um, and, and your company as it's going through, through a crisis. Uh, I think it's specifically true in the, uh, in the fintech world where, where some companies are, have been after acquiring uh, customers and not specifically monetizing them. Um, and finally, there is uh, the, the business that have seen their revenues going down. And here it's definitely about diversifying the client base, maybe attracting some, um, some clients that have been less impacting by crisis or that have been f- thriving in uh, in the crisis we have seen their volume um, increase for example so it would be new um, revenue source for for them and also maybe look for new services to uh, to offer uh, to uh, to existing um, customers
2: yeah that's an excellent point um and now on to my next segment which probably ties into some of the issues that you raise. So the European Credit Sector Association published a paper in April about the policy direction for EU payments over the next five years, looking beyond the immediate changes of the coronavirus. It focuses on instant payments, the second payments directive, branches, and even digital currency. Now, do you think these policies are focusing on the right areas? Are they ones you would have preferred to see?
1: So I think those policies are, are very relevant. They were relevant before COVID. They are probably some of them are probably even more relevant after COVID. Um, I thought this paper was very interesting um, in uh, in exposing their their point of view, um showing uh, very much the the bank uh, side of, or opinion side a bit less fintech. But I definitely think instant payment is um, is very important. We See in the UK is that FPS have literally changed the, the way people uh, interact with money, getting the payment instantly, whether it's for uh, consumers or. or uh, or companies, so it's a very important point. Well PSD2 is definitely uh, uh and open banking is definitely a point of focus for the past uh, few years and should remain one until basically um consumers see the real benefits of it uh, on a day-to-day perspective. Um in the paper I also noticed uh, two other points that I, I thought are still worth mentioning is definitely the financial inclusion piece that we have been mentioning uh, earlier uh, earlier in the show and the need for rationalizing cash while ensuring universal access to digital and uh, and payments essentially so I think it's a point that uh, that the European Union should keep on uh, pushing on uh, as well as providing a stable regulatory environment and really embracing uh, real-world problems and guaranteeing um, basically uh, easy access uh, to, to to fintechs and um, and and banks without imposing basically rules that are not for the real world. So, um, I thought those two points were worth mentioning. A last point that I, I think has failed being mentioned in this paper and, um, that should be a point of focus, uh, for the future is fraud. Prevention. Um, I think with all the changes that have been implemented um, due to COVID, very very fast, it has given room to a lot of thruster to uh, to appear um, and uh, and essentially impersonate people or impersonate services that people use to uh, to retrieve payment details or identity. And I think that it's very important for European Union and, uh, and companies to actually um, leverage the data as a protection uh, against fraud, and it should be a point of focus for, for them.
0: And now last, but by no means least, we've come to the final segment of the show, uh, the fintech jail. This is where our guest submits a term, a trend, uh, a piece of technology or something in the industry that gets on their nerves and tells us why it should be locked away for good. Sharon and I will then debate between ourselves whether it deserves a place in the jail. Uh, Sophie, what term do you think needs sending down?
1: I would like to send down Challenger Bank. Wow,
0: that's a big one.
1: That's a big one. The entire challenger (laughs) bank
0: industry. There we go. Okay. Uh, Tell us why.
1: It's not about putting down the challenger bank industry. It's more about the misuse of the term. Um, because we have been using challenger bank word since I think 2014, 2015, applying it to actually banks and non-banks, what we would call deo banks, essentially people like companies that don't have um banking license. And I think uh, it's, uh, yeah, like those, those companies shouldn't be called uh, challenger banks. They revolutionize maybe the, the way people interact with money. They actually create a uh, new proposition to specific segments that have been under addressed by banks, but they are by no means banks. So I think challenger bank, the, the word itself should be used for companies that are banks that have a, a banking license because then it becomes less mi- misleading for existing, um, for existing customers. Then there is the point about challenger banks themselves and whether they actually challenge a bank or are not really challenging them. Um, I think um, a lot of challenger banks have been focusing about UX, or so how to improve the customer experience and focusing on specific segments. But what we are seeing more and more is that those challenger banks are going... Basically, towards the uh, the bank uh, route um, or traditional bank route to uh, to actually monetize uh, and make money and going basically becoming a traditional bank. And here, where I refer to is more recently, there have been in the news that uh, Revolut uh, uh, has uh, basically changed the way they they charge their customers and becoming more and more traditional banks. So basically, they have come from what was called the challenger bank to actually becoming um, more and more um, normal banks. So I would argue that the real challenger bank, what has been called the real challenger bank, are becoming more and more traditional. Banks, and that's the way they are using to actually monetize and uh, and go towards profitability. Um, yeah, because they haven't found a better way to do that. And the ones that are not monetizing eventually will potentially die. So challenger banks should not be using uh, like uh, existing anymore.
0: Wow, I think that's probably one of the most impassioned pleas we've had in fintech jail, to be honest. Um... Uh, I, I I agree on the, on the aspect of um, everyone and their dog is a challenger bank these days. Um, we have um, our reporter Ruby, um, bless her for her, her effort in continually tracking every single challenger bank we get and interviewing them. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's definitely a term that we see a lot um, and thrown around alongside things like neo bank, digi, digital bank, digibanks, that kind of thing. Um, perhaps there needs to be a, a better term. I mean. Uh, so for me, uh, yeah, I say uh, what, I think in the way that you described it, Sophie. I think yeah, I think Challenger Bank in that in that way goes into the jail. But w- what do you think, Sharon?
2: Yeah, I actually agree. Um, it does need to go to the jail. I mean, we had our guests last week or the week before who also thought about putting in Neo Bank um, as opposed to Challenger Bank, um, and they were sort of umming and ahhing and were a bit afraid to actually go for it. Uh, But it seems like a long time coming. I think this was bound to end up in the jail. Um, I would say, yes, in the way in which, Sophie, you've described it and the misuse of the term, because some of these challengers, in quotes, um, don't actually have a banking license. So, and also ones that end up with one, start looking more like a traditional bank. And then I'm, I'm starting to think to myself, is it more of a marketing scheme then to, you know, sort of look different um more edgy uh try to tap into the gen z millennial look with pastel colors and you know trying to use trendy words or whatever in, the, in their marketing spiel to make them a challenger as opposed to your traditional banks so for me i would say yes i agree in the slammer maybe two three years what do you think alex
0: yeah yeah i think i think that seems fair um <laughs> I've, I have no background in law, so I've got no no idea. I'm referring to you there, Sharon, in terms of
2: sentencing. <laughs> sentencing laws are for me. So yes, two or three years. We can review whether or not its use has continued to be misconstrued, and then either send it back to jail or maybe give it parole, let it walk Excellent. around.
0: Bang virtual <laughs> gavel.
1: That's a great sentence, Sharon. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, that's all we have time for this episode. Thanks to Sharon and Sophie for joining me. But before we sign off, uh, I think we'll give everyone a chance to uh, plug their socials um, or any links they want to get out there. Sophie, maybe you'd like to go first?
1: Sure. Um, so, thanks uh, for, for this recording, Alex Sharon. It was really a, a pleasure. Uh, people will be able to get in touch with me on Twitter, uh, on at Sophie and on LinkedIn, on Sophie uh, Guibault. I will be happy to, uh, to answer uh, any questions and also to, to get connected. And they can also learn more about OpenPaid and how we help uh, corporates with their banking and payment needs on OpenPaid.com. Uh, be a wife
0: for bits fantastic uh sharon what about you
2: you can find me on at fintech kits that's at fintech like the way you normally spell fintech and then kits k-i-t-s you can follow me for black lives matter movement um sort of posts and updates especially for fundraising because there's a lot going on there um also please do check out the latest edition of banking technology magazine um there'll be the july august edition as well coming up shortly too so just keep your eyes peeled for that and you can just check me out on linkedin as always i get several requests um so yeah if i get back to you then great if i don't i'm so sorry all right
0: Fantastic. I echo the, uh, the sentiments about the Banking Technology Magazine. Please do check that out. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at adhamilton91 and on LinkedIn just by searching my name. As for FinTech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at fintechfutures, and on LinkedIn just by searching FinTech Futures and looking for our lovely logo of the two Fs. Uh, if you like this podcast and our other episodes, Uh, Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service. If you haven't listened to the other other episodes, then please go ahead and do so. We'd also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find the podcast by writing a review or recommending us to a friend or passing along the word. But thanks very much for your support. Uh, We'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye.